This Jewish History Podcast is dedicated in honor of Shimi and Jolie Bernstein, new podcast listeners, but old friends of ours. Thank you for your friendship over the years. How much can one individual accomplish over their lifetimes? How big of an impact can one man have on the world? How big of a dent into a nation's and even the world's problems can one person make in the years of life? Historians have long debated these questions. Some argue that society is inexorably rumbling, and all the individuals are but cogs in this great engine that is continuously moving. History will unfold in a certain way with you or without you. Others subscribe to the great man theory of history, which espouses that one towering individual can single-handedly alter the course of history. A Napoleon, a Churchill, a Washington, a Herzl, if you will, can by themselves change the trajectory of history. It would be very hard to argue that Jewish history, certainly as it is portrayed in classical and traditional sources, does not subscribe to the great man theory. If you look at a retrospective of Jewish history, it's the story of great men, and of course, great women, who changed everything. Of course, the first Jew is Abraham, and he emerges in this terrible world. There's rampant immorality. You have a 30% chance of dying of homicide. The world suffers from abject, grinding poverty. That's the norm. Idolatry is everywhere. And you fast forward to today, Idolatry is almost non-existent. Kindness, equality, the universal value of humanity is present everywhere. There's abundance, there's prosperity, there's stability, there's peace. We live in fabulous times. In Jewish philosophy, we say that before Abraham arrived, God, so to speak, was turned away from the world, meaning that he, like, quote-unquote, covered his face. He didn't endow the world with overwhelming goodness. And because of Abraham, because of this great man of history, God fundamentally transformed the way he treats the world. And for the most part, things have improved ever since. And of course, Jewish history has Moses. He's the one who comes and merges the two worlds. He ascends to heaven. He extracts a heavenly Torah and delivers it to us. And of course, there's Samuel and the rest of the prophets, David and Solomon, the rest of the kings, Ezra, Hillel, The Talmud talks about these giants who ascended from Babylon and restored Torah to the community in Israel. One person in Jewish history can indeed accomplish a lot. Rabbi Akiva, after all the great sages died, he resurrects Torah with but five students. Rabbi Judah the Prince, he undertakes this monumental project of Jewish history, the canonization of oral Torah and the writing of the Mishnah. Ravina and Ravashi, these are the architects of the Talmud. Rashi, Rambam, Arizal, Rabbi Yosef Karo, there are many individuals in Jewish history that almost single-handedly altered the trajectory of our people. And even in modern times, the Gona Vilna, the Baal Shem Tov in the 18th century, and in the most recent century, the Chafetz Chaim, the Chazonish, and of course the idea of Messiah, we believe and await the arrival of one man, who will completely transform the entire world to accept God's dominion and the fact that the Jewish people are God's chosen people. 
it's safe to say that Jewish history is dominated by great individuals, great men of history who single-handedly changed the course of our people. There is perhaps no better example of the great man theory of history in modern Jewish history than the subject of this podcast, Chacham Avadia Yosef. Rabbi Yosef, or as he was called, Chacham Ovadia Yosef, or simply Maran, almost single-handedly breathed a spiritual renaissance in the Sephardic communities in Israel and really worldwide. Now, just as a quick disclaimer, when we say Sephardic communities, we're in effect referring to all the Jewish communities that spent the last thousand years under Islamic rule. So in Hebrew, the word Sephard means Spain, but Sephardic is generally used to cover all the Jews who lived in, in Spain and in North Africa and in the Middle East and some places in Europe as well. This was a collection of glorious ancient communities from the Middle East, from North Africa, from elsewhere. And this community or this set of communities experienced upheavals and dislocations and, most frighteningly, grave spiritual challenges. And these communities were imbued with renewed spiritual vigor and pride, thanks largely to Chacham Avadia. In my estimate, in the 20th century, he is the person that's most responsible to bring Jews back to tradition and back to Torah. His career accomplishments are staggering. He was a Torah scholar of absolute unmatched greatness. He was a transformational rabbi. He had rabbinic posts both in Israel and abroad, and he also served as the chief Sephardic rabbi of Israel. He was a voluminous halachist, having answered hundreds of thousands of halachic queries over his lifetime and his career, and he authored 50 books on halacha, on Jewish law, in his lifetime. His accomplishments also extend beyond the rabbinate. He founded the largest and most powerful religious political party in Israel. He is also the patriarch of a prestigious rabbinic dynasty. In fact, the current Sephardic chief rabbi of Israel is his son. And he, until today, remains an inspiring force to hundreds of thousands of followers, even after his passing. You can make a very convincing argument that Chacham Ovadia was the most significant and impactful Jew of the 20th century. But I would say that it's very hard to disagree that he was the most influential Sephardic Jew since Rabbi Yosef Karo, since Maram Bet Yosef in the 1500s. Chacham Ovadi Yosef is indeed a canonical example of the great man who transformed the course of history. He will be the subject of this Jewish history podcast, and at least the upcoming one, perhaps there will be two more on this transformational personality. As always, my name is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby. My email address is rabbiwolbygmail.com. I work for Torch. Please check out my five of other podcasts. Just search Wolby in your favorite podcast app. Chacham Avadia's background was not one that would have predicted 
his meteoric rabbinic success. He was born in 1920 in Baghdad in Iraq. His father, Yaakov, was a goldsmith. Now, there's an interesting trivia about him that actually his name, Ovadia Yosef, those were actually his two first names. The family name, the surname, was Ovadia. So his real name was Ovadia Ovadia. And to clear that confusion, he went by his first and his middle name, and his family is the Yosef family, but his brothers, they all go by the surname Ovadia. At the age of four, in 1924, the family moved to Israel. And today, if you were to go from Mesopotamia to Israel, you'd imagine you'd take a plane, maybe fly Emirates, maybe Dubai Airlines. But no, the family made the 560-mile journey on Camelback together with a caravan of Jews heading to the Holy Land. In Israel, they settled in Jerusalem, just outside the old city, and his father, after losing some money in a bad business deal, opened a small grocery, initially housed in his home, and eventually in a small storefront. From a very young age, Chacham Ovadia, young Ovadia Yosef, displayed tremendous, prodigious potential as a great Torah student. He was a young prodigy, a wunderkind, even as he began his studies in the local Torah school. And from a very early age, we see essentially twin superpowers begin to manifest. On one hand, he has extreme diligence and commitment to Torah study. On the other hand, he also has otherworldly cognitive capacities. In fact, later on, his son would testify that he was capable of multiplying two four-digit numbers in his head in seconds. But from a very early age, he dedicated, he channeled all his prodigious mental faculties to Torah. He didn't want to play ball. He didn't want to even read news. In fact, later on in life, he told his family that until the age of 30, he never read a newspaper. Not just, not a secular newspaper, he never read any newspaper. He wasn't interested in anything besides for Torah. And at a very early age, he begins to conquer vast swaths of Torah. At the age of six, he begins studying Talmud with ferocious diligence. At the age of nine, he's mastering books of Mishnah by heart, chapters of Talmud by heart as well. And this characteristic is going to be a hallmark of a scholarship, the ability to sit and to study with total, complete concentration and to learn, to understand, and to remember, and to memorize by heart gargantuan amounts of Torah. At the tender young age of 10, years younger than any other student, Chacham Ovadia enrolled in the prestigious Parat Yosef Yeshiva in the old city. He would remain in this yeshiva for 15 years. Now, Parat Yosef is going to be the breeding grounds for nearly all the Sephardic Torah giants of the 20th century. And Rabovadia befriended all of them as a youngster. His close friend was Chacham Baruch Ben Chaim, 
who eventually became the rabbi of the Syrian Jewish community in New York. His other best friend was Rav Ben Sion Abishaul, who himself eventually became the Rosh Yeshiva, the head of the Yeshiva of Parak Yosef. And they would walk to school together. They would walk to Yeshiva together. And what would they do on this walk? They would study Torah. And they had a regimen of what they would study on the way to and from the Yeshiva. On the way there, they would take a page of Talmud and review it by heart, the Talmud and the various commentaries. And on the way home, they would review a second page of Talmud and they would alternate. One of them would say the Talmud by heart and the other one would recite the various commentaries and then they would switch on their way back from the yeshiva. Now, it's important to stress, while it is undeniable that Chacham Ovadia Yosef was endowed with superhuman cognitive abilities. He had a razor-sharp intelligence, lightning, quick grasp of any subject, and savant-like retention, perhaps thanks to a photographic memory. He didn't coast to become a great sage. His assiduous diligence in Torah study and total concentration and determination to become a great scholar were unrivaled. Even as a little kid, when he would go home from school, he would sneak out of his house to go study. And there was once a time where he snuck out of his house and he came back after studying in the local study hall and his parents had already gone to bed. And he studied the entire night by moonlight on the doorstep of their apartment. Sometimes he would study under his blanket in the dark, and he had this tendency to study even under very challenging circumstances. And later on in life, the 1970s, he suffered tremendous problems with his vision, with his eyesight, and that was attributed to his early youth years of studying and straining his eyes to study even without a lot of light. Now, his commitment to study was not limited to his youth. His wife said that for much of his life, he actually never slept on Shabbat. He would study the entire night because how could you go to sleep when there's an opportunity to study more Torah? Later on in his life, his son said that they were studying Torah together and it was two in the morning and Chacham Avaya stands up and studies, and his son tells him, why are you standing up? So he says, well, I'm really tired, and I'm worried if I sit down, I'll fall asleep. So I'm going to stand up, and we'll continue studying. I'm going to fend off the sleep. Now, his extreme superlative diligence of studying for hours and hours straight was noted by all, even the people who were not classically part of his quote-unquote camp. There was a Rosh Hashiva who was not Sephardic, who once heard someone denigrating Chacham Ovadia. Because, you know, they were part of the Ashkenazi group, so to speak, and not the Sephardic group. And Chacham Ovadia is the leader of the Sephardic group, so there was a little bit of tension or a little bit of misplaced zeal, so someone was denigrating him. And this Ashkenazic rabbi said, How dare you denigrate the great sage. I remember once in Tel Aviv, when Rabbi Vadya was the rabbi of Tel Aviv, 
there was once a blackout and there was no electricity. And I was walking at night late and it was 11 o'clock at night. And I see the great rabbi, Chacham Ovadia, by a street lamp studying because the street lamp still had light. This is at 11 o'clock at night. And then I woke up the next morning at 6 a.m. to go pray. And guess who's still there by the lamppost? Chacham Ovadia is still studying by the lamppost. This is a person who ought to be universally recognized for his extreme diligence. And even at the end of his life, he was in his 90s already, he would still spend up to 18 hours a day studying Torah and writing his Torah works. He had time dedicated for public reception, but besides that, he was jealously protective over his time And when they tried to pull him to functions and to other things, he would say, do you want me to remain an ignoramus? Do you want me to be ignorant of matters of Torah? I need to go study. Now, when he studied, he really got into his own. Once the upstairs neighbor was doing some renovations and he didn't want to disturb the great rabbi's study. So he said to him, what do I do? I have some renovations, maybe some noise, maybe a jackhammer. I don't want to disturb your study. So they told him, the rabbi starts his session of study at 9. You could start your renovations at 9.05. No matter how much noise you're going to make, he's not going to hear you. And indeed, he continued studying despite the raucous noise around him. Now, there's a story that... It's so hard for us to believe. I'm only saying it because it is documented and well verified. He once had to undergo a surgery. And he was worried that if he got the anesthesia, it's going to affect him. He's going to be groggy. He didn't want to get the anesthesia. So he told the operating individuals, the doctors... Let me study some Torah. And I know that once I'm in the zone, once I'm studying Torah, you can do whatever you want and I won't even notice it. So he gets immersed in study. They do the surgery. They finish the surgery and he says to them, okay, did you guys start yet? They said, no, 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 we're done already. You just didn't notice it because you were totally engrossed in your study. Once he actually was on a ladder in a library with Torah books everywhere. And he was so immersed in the subject at hand. And he was reading a book that was a Torah book relevant to a subject that he was researching. that he got so into it, he forgot he was on the ladder. And he started walking and he fell off the ladder and he actually fractured his arm. And again, there's many stories about this tremendous diligence and how engrossed Chacham Ovadia would get when he would study. But there was one story that actually made Israeli news in the secular media. In the last few months of his life, again, in the 1980s, he founded a political party. So on top of being a great sage, a great Torah sage, he was also the titular head of one of the big political parties in Israel. So all the prime ministers and all the politicians would come visit him and consult with him. 
he was a big player on the national scene. So the Prime Minister Netanyahu came to visit him. And they had to discuss some matter, some political matter. And they walk in. The Prime Minister, you imagine he had his coterie, his retinue with him. And they walk into the office and the great rabbi is studying. And he's totally oblivious to the hubbub that surrounds them. So one of the people there starts to make a move to go nudge the great rabbi out of his study. And Bibi says, no, 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 let let him continue studying. So they wait, they figure, you know, there's a lot of people here. Eventually he'll notice that there is a commotion around him. He'll pick his head up. So one of the grandsons said to them, no, you don't get it. If you don't stop him, he's not going to pick up his head for hours. So eventually they had to shake the rabbi, shake Chamovadia. Otherwise, he would be oblivious to them the entire day. Now, Chamovadia, as a young, brilliant scholar with peerless diligence and commitment and intensity of study, he also displayed uncommon aspirations as a youth. He always had grand ambitions to become a great Torah scholar. In fact, in a diary entry, he wrote as a youth, I know that I am destined for greatness. This is not premonition. This is not him being a clairvoyant. He had all the tools for greatness but he deployed them with absolute intensity. Later on in life, when he was recognized as the undisputed leader of Sephardic Jewry worldwide, he would try to inspire others to also have ambition to become big, to become great. He used to often say, when he would give public speeches, he would tell the assembled that Napoleon... When he would gather his troops, he would make the following announcement. He would say, is there anyone here that doesn't want to be a general? If you don't want to be a general, leave. Because if you don't have ambition, you'll never accomplish anything. And then he said to the assembled, all of you, you have to have ambitions to become a general in Torah. Because if you don't dream big, if you don't shoot for the stars... You're not going to have success. So as a young man, a young scholar, he's he's a teenager. He writes a list of 16 Torah books that he plans to publish over his life and actually includes the titles that he plans to use for this list of books. And indeed, over the course of his life, He actually did write all the books that he set out to write as a teenager. At the age of 17, he finishes the Talmud for the first time, and he publishes his first work of Talmudic scholarship titled Yabia Omer. Now, this is an interesting book. Of course, it's written by a teenager. He had not yet matured into the giant that he would become, but this book included a section on many hundreds of rabbis from the Mishnaic and the Talmudic era and the various generations in which they lived. So he had a sense of all the sages from the Mishnah, from the Talmud, and where they fit in generationally. 
And in fact, this is really interesting. When he would publish his works, he would often cite many different sources on either side of a potential issue, a vexing dilemma that a halachic work was trying to decrypt and demystify. And oftentimes he would actually include a staggering amount of sources. But when he would present the sources, sometimes hundreds of sources in a single essay, he would present them in the order that they actually appear historically and he would present them chronologically. Later on in his life, when he's already written many, many books, he would tell the story that when he was a teenager and he had all these ambitions and he had all these dreams and he had all these books that he planned to write, his friends, his peers would laugh at him. What are you having some megalomaniacal plans? You're going to write all these books? And then Chacham Avadia tells the assembled, by now, I've already written 40 of those volumes. Now, thanks to his rare combination, on one hand, incredible intellectual abilities, but married with diligence, with concentration, with determination, with ambition, Chacham Avadia became a giant Torah scholar. Now, he would not subsist with merely studying something. He was determined to know it all, to know everything by heart. As a young student, he began memorizing the basic texts, the Mishnah, of course, the Torah, the Scripture, the Talmud, by heart. And then he moved on to the Halachic works, the Shulchan Aruch, the various commentaries, the great responsa literature, all by heart. His children used to play a game with him. They would go to the bookshelf and randomly pick out a volume of Talmud, and they would hide all the identifying features of a page that would cover the page number, and they would cover the book title, and they would show them a little snippet of one of the commentaries on a given page. And again, there's, there's thousands of pages of Talmud, and the layout of them is all similar, and all you have to see is a few words. And he would say, okay, this is this particular book of Talmud on this particular page. He knew it all. And he encouraged his children, I found this really interesting, he encouraged his children to read the Kriyat Torah. Why? Because if you're forced to read from the Torah on Shabbos, it's going to force you to memorize Torah. Now, in the superb art scroll biography on Chacham Ovadia, it tells the following incredible story. Later on in life, when Chacham Ovadia was already a national and even a political figure, he was regularly visited by various political leaders and, and members of the government. And there was an individual who was the director general of the education ministry. His name was Eliezer Shmueli. And he would visit Chacham often to discuss matters of import for the nation. And whenever they would discuss something... In Chacham Avadi's library, they would start by having this person go to the shelf and plucking out any book, and there were thousands, tens of thousands of books on the bookshelf, and have him 
choose any book, give Chacham Avadia the title and the page number. Any book. Out of the thousands, the tens of thousands of books. And right away, Chacham Avadia, when he knew the page number and the book title, he would just start reading by heart the page. Of course, this doesn't sound believable, but he would recite it word for word what appeared on that given page. He acquired unparalleled mastery of Torah. A colleague of mine speculated that Chacham knew more Torah than anyone perhaps in history since maybe Moses. Why? Because over the course of history, there's more and more books that are written and are added to the canon or added to the classic Jewish library. And he would voraciously consume these books and assimilate their knowledge into his mind and know it all and maybe even memorize it. And is there anyone that knew that much Torah or that many works of Torah? It's kind of a staggering thing to think about. When he would give lectures, he would oftentimes recite so many sources and would give you the the page number, would give you the citation, where to find it. And sometimes the students would try to keep track of it. And in one of the yeshivas, yeshiva called Kol Yaakov, two students were taking comprehensive notes of the lecture. And every time Chacham Avagia would quote a source, they would write it down. They'd say, we're going we're gonna to cross-check it because he's reading this all by heart. He must be off on some of these sources. So they made a list. And the list comprised, in this one lecture, 110 different sources. And they spent two days going through all the books and finding all the sources. And you know what? Every single one of them was spot on. Now, this one story that I read, this is my favorite story of all. I mentioned earlier that one of his best friends was Rabbi Ben-Sion Abashaul, who became the Rosh Yeshiva of the Parat Yosef Yeshiva that they were both alumni of. So at his son's wedding, he had only one son. His name was Ravel Yahu Abashaul. So Chacham Ovadia was at the wedding. And who else was at the wedding? A rabbi by the name of Rabbi Chaim Kreisworth. Now, if that name happens to ring a bell, we mentioned Rabbi Chaim Kreisworth in the last Jewish History Podcast. He was a son-in-law of Rabbi Avraham Grudzinski, and he was the chief rabbi of Antwerp. And he was maybe the only person in the world that could hold a candle or could be in the same league as Chacham with a total encyclopedic mastery of Torah and of Talmud. So you have these two Torah giants that loved each other, Chacham and Rabbi Kreisworth, and they're sitting at the wedding of the son of Rabbi Ben-Sion Abashol. And of course, whenever there's a wedding, there's some extra time. So they say, you know what? Let's study together. Let's study together. So Chacham says, well, what should we study? So Rabbi Kreisworth says, well, we're at the wedding of the son of 
Harav ben Sion Abashol. Now in the Talmud, there is a figure, one of the great sages of the Talmud, whose name was Abba Shaul, and he's found in the Mishnah and the Talmud. So why don't we study the following thing? Let us begin to recite, by heart, all the times where the Talmudic sage Abba Shaul is featured, and we'll alternate. We'll begin at the first book of the Talmud, and we'll mention every time he's mentioned, every time this name is mentioned, among the hundreds and thousands of names that are found in the Talmud, every time this particular sage, Abishol, is mentioned, let's go through them. So they begin. Okay, well, the book of Brachos, on page, uh, I don't know, 7, he appears here. And on page 12, he appears there. And they go back and forth. They have such complete mastery of Talmud, they could do it by heart. Going through the entire seas of the Talmud, mentioning every time Abishol's name appears. At one point, Harav Avadia was his turn, Chacham Avadia's turn, and he mentions the next source, the next place in the Talmud where the sage Abishol appears. And Rabbi Kreisworth tells him, no, 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 you missed one a few pages earlier. You skipped one. I win. So Chacham Avadia tells him, no, no, no. If you look at the Talmudic commentaries on that particular page of Talmud, they point out that the Abishal of that particular piece of Talmud is a different sage. That's not the sage that we're talking about. And therefore, he's not going to qualify. So Robert Kreisworth shook his head in amazement and said, with Chacham Avadia, I can't compete. When he became a rabbi, First, he was the rabbi, the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, and eventually became the chief rabbi of the whole country. He innovated the ways that he taught Torah to the masses, and he would have a weekly radio show where people from all across the country could call up and ask any question. And of course, he never knew ahead of time what questions people would ask. And he always knew the answer. And he would always quote the sources chapter and verse, of course, without the aid of any books. And oftentimes the interviewer, the host, the radio person would have to mention it. The audience should know that Chacham Avadia has no book in front of him. Even though it sounds like he's reading verbatim from sources, he's actually reading it by heart. There is no book in front of him. Now he himself denied the fact that he had a photographic memory. He said that everything that he remembered is because he studied it hundreds of times. And he would say, whenever I finish studying a particular matter of Torah, I immediately review it a minimum of 40 times. Now, he had a legendary library in his house. Ultimately, it included 40,000 Torah volumes. But to make it on the shelf, he had to have read it cover to cover. In fact, when they bought a house, the only requirement that he wanted that it would have high ceilings so he could fit all the bookshelves for all the books in his collection. And every book had its place. And later on in life, he had attendants who knew where all the books were and they would ferret them back and forth as he wrote his voluminous 
writings. And even though he knew it all by heart, whenever he would quote something, he would always get the actual physical book to double-check it before publishing. Now, there's an amazing story about what happened when he was still a child. His father knew that his son was special, but he needed help in the grocery. The young family needed to make a livelihood, and he needed all hands on deck. So one day he tells his son, okay, today, don't go to the yeshiva, today I need you in the grocery store. So the heads of the yeshiva, Chacham Ezra Atiyah, a legend of Parat Yosef Yeshiva, the teacher of the great Sephardic sages of the modern era, he discovers one day that young Ovadia is missing. And he figures out that he's actually working for his father. Now this is a terrible misappropriation of talent. The young Ovadia Yosef should be studying Torah. He's destined for greatness. Why is his father commissioning him to go be a cashier in the store. So he comes to the store and he tells the father, I need your son in the yeshiva. He's too important. He shouldn't be working as a cashier. So his father says to him, what can I do? I need to make a living. I have to have some help in the grocery store. So the next day, the great rabbi showed up in working clothes. And he says to them, okay, you need a few hours a day from young Ovadia? I'll do the work. Let him go study. And when Chacham Ovadia's father heard that, he says, you know what? I'm relenting. I'm going to dedicate him to study. Now, when he would spend those days in the grocery store, Whenever there was no customers, whenever there were no clients, he would have a Torah book with him to study. Remember, he had like this dependency, almost like an addiction for Torah. Every spare second, he would commit himself to study. So he's spending some time here in his father's grocery store. He has to do it, but if there's no work for him, he would quickly sneak some time to go study. When he became the chief rabbi, So one of his duties was to go visit the jails, visit prison. And there was a bank robber who told him, you were the first person I stole from. When you were the cashier in your father's store and you were busy consumed with your Torah book, I snuck in as a young kid and that is where my career as a thief began. At the age of 17, Chacham Avadia began to give regular Torah classes in a local synagogue. And this would go on to be a major focus of his career. In fact, if you Google Chacham Avadia, you'll find things that the secular media and the weird people on the internet have surfaced and taken out of context and make them look terrible invariably those things that he allegedly said were taken from his speeches that he would give. And this he already began at a very young age. At the age of 17, he's already giving regular lectures. 
And at this very tender age, he's developing and honing a legendary, inimitable speaking style. He was funny. He was sharp. He was also deeply emotional. And he would make his topics relevant to the audience. And he would pepper his speeches with stories. And he even would tell serialized stories to make sure that the audience would come back for the next lecture. So he's this young sage already embarking on a career of not only studying for himself, but spreading and sharing the Torah with audiences that come to listen to him. At the age of 23, he marries Margalit Fatal. She was the daughter of Chacham Avraham Fatal. And in fact, during their dates, he would take her on a date, and then he would say, okay, now I have to go give a lecture. So she would come and listen to the lecture from the women's section, and then they would continue their dates, and they would go to his next lecture. And then he would give her three different lectures every time they went on a date, and she was quite mesmerized by him, as you would imagine. Now, eventually, together with his wife, Chacham would bear 11 children, including many great rabbis and communal leaders. And in fact, as we mentioned earlier, his son, Rabbi Yitzchak Yosef, is the current Sephardic chief rabbi of Israel. Soon after his marriage, he joined the Sephardic Bet Din, the Sephardic rabbinical court of Jerusalem, and thus began a prestigious rabbinic career that saw serve as rabbi in various cities and posts in Israel, and even in a stint in Egypt as a rabbi in Cairo. And of course, in 1973, he was elected to serve as Sephardic chief rabbi of the whole country. And he would serve in official rabbinic capacities until 1983, and at that point, his 10-year term as chief rabbi ended. But even afterwards, for the rest of his life, he was the de facto Sephardic chief rabbi. He was the leader. He was the halachic authority for the rest of his life. And once on the national stage, this great man of history, Chacham Avari Yosef, would change the face of Sephardic Jewry in Israel and in the world over. But the base of all his greatness and the foundations of his stunning career achievements was his lifelong immersion in Torah study, his dedication, his commitment, his diligence, his knowledge of Torah were unparalleled. And that underlaid all the fantastic accomplishments that we're going to talk about, please God, in the upcoming episode, perhaps two, of the Jewish History Podcast, his role as a rabbi, his role as a posik, as a halachic arbiter, his role in transforming the face of Sephardic Jewry worldwide, his lifelong mission to restore the crown of the Sephardic glory to its previous prominence, that is the story that, please God, we will tell 
next time. My name is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby. This is the Jewish History Podcast. I work for Torch, the Torah Outreach Resource Center of Houston. Our website is torchweb.org. My email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. Please email me with any questions, comments, feedback. Also, please check out my other podcasts, This Jewish Life, The Parsha Podcast, Torah 101, The Mitzvah Podcast, and The Ethics Podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll speak next time.